Matthew 23, chapter 23, verse 1. We are moving forward. Uh, today we are answering the question, how do I get rid of my hypocrisy? Yeah, that's right. You came to hear this. All right. It's actually really good. It's really going to be, I think, encouraging, if not also extremely challenging. But how do we get rid of it? Because if we have it, we certainly don't want it. And if we don't think we have it, then we probably need to pay attention even more. Uh, what did uh, C.S. Lewis said? He said, if, if you, if you uh, want to deal with pride, you first need to admit that you have it. And if you think you're not conceited, then you are, things like that. So it's like, okay, C.S. Lewis, just, uh, I won't read the whole quote because it's pretty brutal, but um, you get the idea. So um, we are, um, so Matthew, one of the 12, writes his story of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And we are moving through his account, one passage at a time. And today we're going to look at 12 verses here, beginning of this chapter, that really just talk about Jesus' warning against hypocrisy. Now, he's warning against hypocrisy for two reasons, at least. First reason is others practice hypocrisy, including people like me, people who sit in front of you and teach. And you need to be aware that you sometimes are being taught by a hypocrite, like today. Okay, And then the other is to warn you that, um, and then look in the mirror and recognize that sometimes you're the hypocrite listening to the hypocrite. So all of this to say we need to be really um, asking ourselves, okay, what are my blind spots, and God, where do I need to humble myself today? Okay, And that's a terribly difficult thing to do, right? We don't, necessarily, we don't usually go to the bookstore when we're looking for books, if we are looking for books. We don't usually go looking for the book titled Humility. Right, and then who's who's arrogant enough to write that book? Right. Well, so let's pray. Lord, as we uh, head into this passage uh, that you have given us through your Son, Lord, I pray first of all that you would help us to go in with our eyes open, the eyes of our heart open, hearts and minds just open to what it is you want to say to us today. Because some of these. Some of this is hard, and some of it is just a warning shot to help us remember. There's, we're going to be tempted, and sometimes even deceived by those who are also giving into this spiritual arrogance that leads to hypocrisy. And Lord, I admit that I find myself a hypocrite more times than I would like to admit, and I repent of my hypocrisy, of my spiritual arrogance, and my self-sufficiency, even as I seek to stand here and lead us to humble ourselves. And so, Lord, I'll just continue to can help me learn how to do that better because I'm not good at that. And I know people who know me well know that. And so, Lord, I'm just grateful for the mercy and grace that you show me. And I pray that po- folks in this room, folks listening online, would recognize that that mercy and grace is available to them as well. So, Lord, we pray you'll pour it out today. We certainly are going to need it. We ask for you to help us do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let's jump in here and let's see what Jesus has to say. The very first thing, starting in verse 1, Matthew writes, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. So first thing we should notice here is who's he talking to, okay? Um, Those of you who have been hearing the last several messages Jesus has been confronted by religious leader after religious leader after religious group after religious sect. Everybody's confronting him, and they're all trying to make him look bad. They're all trying to discredit him, 
We're trying to trap him, trick him, test him, just to discredit him so that his message will not be heard or taken seriously. And yet he continues to press forward with great success because they just can't do it because he is the word, the living word. And, and so here we are, and the last, last week we ended where it said they, they didn't ask him any more questions. They were kind of done trying. They realized that he had won, whether they admitted it or not. And so now Jesus is moving forward, and Jesus is like, okay, now it's my turn. And so here we are in the last days of Jesus. Remember, he is, he's the week of the cross. He is not far away from dying on the cross for the sins of the world, and he knows it, and he is, he's basically taking these last few days to say the things he really wants to say. So you can kind of take all of this as last words, right? I mean, if you're on your deathbed and your kids are all around the bed and and you're like, you know, this is your last day, you're probably going to try to say something profound in the moment. You're probably going to tell your kids you love them, even if you've never said it before, things like that. And, And Jesus is here knowing I've only got a few more days with them, the crowds, the disciples, even the religious leaders, I'm going to say some things because I've only got a few days left. And God is going to lead, you know, God, the Holy Spirit, the Father, Son, they're all working together here to say what needs to be said. But in the first 12 verses, he's looking at the crowds and he's looking at his disciples, which means he's not just looking at the people then that were believers and not, but he's also looking ahead to us. So these words are for us. Now, also who's there includes those religious leaders that were just trying to trap him. They're there, they're listening, and it's a good thing, and he knows this, that they're there because he's going to tell the crowd and the disciples what he thinks about them. And then, starting next week, we get to see what he says directly to them. But you have to wait for that. This week, it's what does he say about them? And he pulls no punches, or at least I hope he's not, because, wow, this is pretty intense. So then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law, some translations call them the scribes, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Okay, this is just a fact. All right, so some of you know, if you've been to a college or you know about college, the university system, there are professors who sometimes get the designation of sitting in a chair. In other words, uh, they are the chair of this particular college or university system or, or subject or major or something like that. And, and that's the way they do endowments to help fund the university uh, through a large gift, and, and they endow that chair, and it helps fund things, okay? So, um, for example, at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, where I went, they, uh, they endowed a chair of evangelism. It's called the Billy Graham Chair of Evangelism. I don't wonder who gave to that. I don't really know. But um, so there, you know, that's the idea. And, and the point is that we're talking about the religious leaders. So we're talking about the upper crust of Jewish society, which is a little strange, right? The religious leaders are there. Um, and they're there in wealth. They're there in popularity in the sense that they are respected. They're there in power, which is all upside down in Jesus' kingdom. We understand this. We're learning this as we see what he has to say. But he is stating a fact. These religious leaders who teach you and know the law of God inside and out, which he would be referring to the Old Testament, they have those chairs. They have those positions. They have that authority, and that is right and good. We didn't really expect that, and we certainly don't expect what he says next. So, in light of that truth or fact, you must be careful to do everything they tell you. Again, I didn't expect that. I didn't see that coming. He's like, wait a minute, you're telling them to obey what they teach? And he's like, yes, because they're teaching the Word of God. They're teaching, in this day, at this point, the Old Testament Scriptures were the only 
scriptures we had written down since after Jesus we write the New Testament. So I want you to imagine there's a line right here, and this line I want you to imagine represents the Word of God. So when they teach the Old Testament scriptures, they are teaching scripture, and that is what the people are to obey. He's talking to the crowds. He's talking to the disciples, okay? And so at this point, the religious leaders are probably going, oh, okay, that's good. Thumbs up Jesus. Well, that's going to end right about now because then he's going to say, but do not do what they do for they do not practice what they preach. So here, one commentator I was following, his name is Doug O'Donnell. I really love his Matthew commentary. He calls this the big mouth section. He calls the next section the big head section. So big mouth, big head, describing these religious leaders and these 12 verses. I kind of enjoyed this, but um, I have to remember that I'm in there. So it's not as fun when I think about it that way. So we're going to move on from that. But there we go, big mouth, because they're using, they're teaching the word, which they should be, and we use our mouths to do that, and that's appropriate. Um, but they're doing something that puts, they, they move from teaching the word to subtracting from the word, okay? And that's a bad thing. And this is how they do it. They, they do not practice what they preach. They take away from the power of the truth that they taught because they don't actually live it, which means they don't actually believe it enough to actually live it out, okay? And that's hypocrisy. That's what hypocrisy is. It's pretending to be someone you're not. This is who they are. This is who they claim to be and call everyone else to be, okay? This is why I'm a hypocrite, because I preach the Word of God, and I try to be as close as I can to Scripture, but if you were to follow me around any typical week, especially if you were to ride with me in the car and I wasn't aware of it, you would know that I don't always practice what I preach, okay? My actions do not always mirror my words, okay? Now, there's a difference between doing it because you're not consistent in your walk and doing it on purpose, and I'm not saying I'm doing it on purpose, okay? They, there's a, probably a mixed bag here, right? We're all a mixed bag, aren't we? Let's be honest, right? Our motives are rarely pure, even on our best days. But Jesus is putting them in a category where he's already called them sons of hell. So we know that he's like Satan's offspring. That's pretty much another level, and I pretty, I'm pretty confident I am not in that family tree. But nevertheless, that's where I started. I've been adopted out, so um, we're grace of God, right? So, But then they continue, and he says this is how they actually work above the line of Scripture. So they, they take away from Scripture by not living it. They add to Scripture by adding something. Verse 4, they tie up heavy cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. What are they doing? They're adding rules and regulations to the Word of God, okay? These are the man-centered rules that they did, and, and I think they had good intentions early in the process. Now it's just a hammer to beat people down with, which is why they don't feel free, which is why they feel condemned, even though they're supposed to be free in, in, in the Lord. And so I was trying to think of what this is like, and I thought about, and, I, and forgive me, civics teachers, if I don't get this quite right, but this is, this is the way I'm, I'm understanding our, our government a little bit. So there's the three, you know, the three parts of the government. You have the executive branch, judicial branch, executive branch, White House, uh, judicial branch, Supreme Court, and legislative branch, Congress. <laughs> That's hard to say. Okay, so Congress makes the law, the Supreme Court judges the law, and the White House executes the law. 
Okay? At least they're supposed to. Okay? So, now, um, Congress writes a law. If they don't write a law, it's not a law. I don't have to obey it, right? Well, the White House executive branch has figured out a way to make the laws also. And this is called through their bureaucracy, which we would think of as the cabinets and all the agencies under the cabinets. Think of the EPA and Department of this and the Department of that. They all have money to spend, and they come up with rules. Think of the Department of Education. All the rules they make that, you know, encourage states to do certain things or they don't get some money. So there's rules and things that we would think of as, well, Congress didn't write that law, so that's not a law. Yeah, but they've got quite a bit of leverage, and so it effectively acts as at least a rule or, and we talk about regulations and, you know, people are for them and against them and all that. And so that's kind of what these man-made laws were that the religious leaders were making above the line of Scripture. That's how they were adding. And it was burdensome and cumbersome to them then, just kind of like this is for us in our country today. Not to say that all regulations are bad. They certainly aren't. Okay, so that's how they use their big mouths. Now, they, now let's look at their big heads, okay? And let's remember, we got some of this in us. We got this disease, this big head disease. We got It's called pride, okay? And uh, here's how it looks in a summary statement, verse 5. Everything they do is done for people to see. You may have the word all there. If you've got something and you are willing to do the unthinkable and write in your Bible, gasp, circle everything or all. Everything they do is done for people to see. Well, there's really no question what their motives are here in my view, and Jesus is talking about them in front of them. Everything those guys do, they're doing it so that you will see because they like how that feels. And then he breaks down and gives several examples. They make their phylacteries, there's a word that you don't say every day, wide and the tassels on their garments long. So um, in, uh, actually it was in the passage that Ken read. I don't know if he read that far or not, but in there it talks about the Deuteronomy passage, Deuteronomy 6, it talks about tying uh, God's words to your, to the frontals of your, uh, whatever, to your head and to your wrists, okay? And so they took this literally, and I'm not even sure they were supposed to, okay? I'm not sure this isn't just metaphorical language to say, take the word of God and meditate on it and memorize it and put it into practice, okay? Know it, do it. That's kind of what I'm thinking. But what they did, and I don't think there's anything wrong with this in and of itself, but think about the heart behind it. They said, well, I'm going to write down a piece of verse, roll it up as a little tiny scroll, and tuck it into this little leather pouch boxy-looking thing called a phylactery, and then I'm going to tie it on a piece of leather and hang it from my headpiece and hang it from my wrist, so that people will see that I'm spiritual because I'm carrying Scripture around on my head and wrist, okay? Now, they're serious about this, and, you know, there's some competition going on. My box is bigger than yours. I got more Scripture in here than yours. You know, that kind of, and it's like, I want, and then go back to that verse. Everything they do is done for people to see, okay? So this is one example. The tassels, same idea. They had these prayer shawls with tassels on them, and, you know, bigger tassels means you must pray more because you have these huge tassels. And I don't know if they're dragging the dirt, but you get the idea, right? So there's some examples. And it says they do this. And then comes more of this love language where Jesus says this is what they love to do. They love the place of honor at banquets. When I think of a banquet, I think of a fancy party, 
Okay, not that I've been to one before, but you know what I'm saying. It's like, it's formal. We're going to sit at a table. And so even if they were having a banquet, whether it was at someone's house, most of them would have been in a house or in a larger facility, not that they had a lot of those, you would come and the host would sit at the head of the table. And then they would have the seats of most or greatest honor at the right and the left. And as you got further away from the host, you were less and less honored as a guest. But you were still a guest and you were still there. And so this idea was because they had such a high position in society, they would get to sit up close to the host. And they loved that seat because everybody's looking at them because of how spiritual they are and what they do. And, and if you hear the, 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 sar- the sarcasm and the, and the cynicism in my it, it's kind of what Jesus is saying here is this is why they love to sit there, because they love it because it's about them, and it fuels their pride, the big-headedness that comes with position a lot of times, okay? Titles, right? This is why we seek titles. This is why we seek um, uh, awards and uh, raises and promotions and special recognition at work or at home or in a team or whatever, because we like the feeling, right? We're not so different. So it starts to dig in when you start to think about it. But they love something else here. They love the most important seats in the synagogues. So their synagogues were basically like Jewish churches, right? They'd come together on the Sabbath. For them, it was Saturday. They would come into the, the assembly room, and they would read Scripture, and they would pray, and they would sing songs, and they would preach, all the same kinds of things. And they would have a special seat for the rabbi, and he would sit, and it was a seat just for him. I don't know if it had a plaque and his name on it. Wouldn't be surprised. It reminds me of the churches I grew up in where you had two pulpits, and you had these big chairs back here, and the preachers would sit in those chairs the entire service if they weren't standing behind one of the pulpits. And these chairs, well, I hesitate to call them chairs because they look like thrones, right? You, you know what I'm talking about, right? They look really uncomfortable, and they look really oversized. Uh, and and there's and it's just like, who would sit and I would never put one of those in my house. It's that kind of seat. And, and if you love to sit in those seats because people see you sitting in those seats, what does that say, right? And that's kind of what Jesus is getting at here. It's interesting. Um, in the, I don't know if you all picked up on this, and I didn't see it. I heard about it. But in the inaugur- inauguration, it's not right. In the uh, crowning of King Charles III, is that right? King Charles III? Um, in England recently, he sits in... A, the, in the process of the, thank you, the coronation, thank you. Um, when you, in the process of doing that, he sits in King Edward's throne, which is an ancient piece of wood that's been sitting there forever. What's interesting about the throne is it's huge by design because it's designed to make the king look small because it happens, and I don't know if it's in the cathedral or not. But the idea is, I think, remember who you are, king, because you're not the king of kings. Okay. And so all of this is, you know, Jesus is thinking, he's not thinking about that, but he's thinking about this idea of, you know, where do you love to be seen? Everything they did, they did to be seen. Verse five again. They also love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi. Today, it would be like if I was walking down the mall and people knew who I was a pastor and people would be shopping and they would see me and they would stop and they would go, be blessed, pastor, as I walked by. And then they would go back to what they were doing. That's what they were doing in the streets of Jerusalem every time any rabbi walked by. 
they would say, or a priest or a scribe, and they would they would stop and they would, you know, probably rolling their eyes when they're not looking. You know, I don't know, but this is like we have to honor these guys. And they loved it. They added up because why? Because it was they were making it all about, and so their, their heads are just getting huge. And then Jesus says this, but you are not to be called rabbi, which means teacher, and it means some other things too, but I think for the context here, teacher is appropriate. You are not to be called rabbi. In other words, don't call them that revered title rabbi, for you have one teacher. And in mine, it's capitalized, which isn't in the original languages, but context really commands that this is pointing to Christ. And you are all brothers because we're family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. And do not call anyone father. Now, this doesn't mean call your, you can't call your dad father. Think about the Catholic Church. Some of you all have come up through that, and they call the priests, I think they call the priests sometimes father, right? And this is it's a, it's a prestigious title in the Catholic Church, right? To be called father is you're honoring him, right? And so there's that. He's like, no, you have one father. And they're talking about your daddy. So it's like you have one heavenly father, right? He's in heaven. Verse 10, nor are you to be called instructors. Now, this really looks out of place in here, doesn't it, instructors? But the idea is, again, teacher. And this is that mirror. This is some of that, um, the way they write scripture to make it easier to memorize. They have put things in chevrons, and you have teacher, father, teacher, just that mirror image mindset. Um literature. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. And this is why I say that the teacher is referring to Jesus, even though we know from scripture that the Holy Spirit is called our teacher. So basically, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all three, God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, are all teaching us and able to teach us scripture. And when you call me teacher, you shouldn't that I should not even be in the same ballpark as them. But when you do call them or me uh, with a title, it's like you're elevating me closer to God than you are, and that is not okay. Okay, it's not okay for me because it keep, then I'm tempted to get the big head. That's not your fault. That's that's on me. But it also isn't true. And you're tempted to believe that that might be true. And I guarantee you there's people listening to me right now that think I'm closer to God than they are because I'm up here doing this. And that is not the case. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. That's why he says, you are all brothers. And you can, by context, add sisters, brothers and sisters. We are all family. I might be a little ahead of you in my Bible knowledge and in my walk with Christ, but that doesn't mean, mean I'm any better than you. I'm any valued, valued any more than you. I am a brother and sister. I'm not a sister. I'm a brother with my brothers and sisters, okay? All right, so that, that's, that's a big deal. So, so, um, so how do we apply that here? Sometimes people will call me Pastor Darren or worse and um, better, whatever, and I will say, you can just call me Darren. And I, this is what I'm thinking about when I say that. I'm okay if you call those things because I understand that not everybody has heard or thought about this. And I know that when you say it, I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt here because I know some of you, but you mean it generally by you're trying to show respect and you teach your kids to say it. We taught our kids to say it to Pastor Eddie. This is Pastor Eddie, not just Eddie. And, and, and I, I get all of that. Okay, but Jesus is giving us warnings here, and the warnings are for you, and the warnings are for me, and anyone in leadership. Titles make your head get big, okay, and so you got to be careful, and again, that's on me. If I let it bother, if I make my head big, that's not your fault. 
That's me giving into temptation, and I'm responsible for how I respond to that, okay? But it, it helps if you just call me Darren or the dreaded Brother Darren, which, you know, makes my hair curl, even though it's totally legit and biblical, right, brother? So I kind of like the uh, southern way of saying brother better. I think Bubba. <laughs> you know, when kids can't say brother, and so they say Bubba. I think that would be, you can call me Bubba Darren. How about that? Anytime you want, totally don't think that'll go to my head. All right? But you get the idea. And he continues, and he really doubles down on, well, that's all of his him doubling down on that idea. Okay? All right. So we got two verses left. So we're going to wrap it up this way. I'm going to give you one principle that's going to encapsulate all of this, because that's how sometimes it's written in Scripture. You'll have this mic drop moment at the end of the passage, and Jesus is going to do that here. So I'm going to give you one principle. That's the mic drop moment. I'm going to give you two motives for following that principle. I'm going to give you three applications, and I might even throw a fourth of something just for fun. Okay, so let's see what we got here. So verse 11, the greatest among you will be your servant. Now, we've heard Jesus say something like this before already to his disciples when they were all jostling for first place, and one, I want to be the one that sits at your right hand, and he's like, if you want to be first, you need to be last. If you want to be great in the eyes of God, you serve, okay? And you don't just serve. It's like, okay, Darren, you're serving. I am serving. I'm absolutely serving using my gifts. But man, this is still not, it it is easy to be tempted to be big-headed doing something like this. What, I mean, you're literally elevating me in front of people. It's really hard not to to fall for that, okay? And, And I'm continually repenting of it, all right? But serving people, period, is still the right direction towards greatness in the kingdom. Okay, and I think that starts at home, whatever your home is, okay, and it works out from there. I think it works from your home to your, if you, your, uh, what I'll call your oikos, your, your spiritual family, those that are, that are in, your, in and out of your life every day, your church family would be even bigger than that, and then the rest of the world, okay? And you can do more than one thing at a time, so you can love people. You don't have to do it linearly. You can do it all at the same time. But the priority, if you have to pick a priority, is make sure you're not missing those at home. Serve them. You want to show someone you love them? Serve them. You really want to show them that you love them? Don't show them. Just serve them. Don't let them see you doing it. It's okay, but you know what I'm saying, right? Don't do it for everything they do is done for people to see, right? We can look spiritual serving in the church, can we not, right? Two people can be greeting at the doors. One is doing it because they love the Lord and they want to just pour out their heart and, and, and show him uh, through their service, their love for him. And one can be back here going, I just hope people see me. Now, I'm not saying the people that greet at the front door are all holy and the ones at the back door, are, you know, I'm not saying that. Actually, they would be at the front door if they wanted to be seen, right? And I'm not saying the people at the front, you know what I'm saying, right? It matters what's happening in your heart, doesn't it? Outwardly, we can look the same, and God sees the heart. And honestly, people that are around you for very long, they start to see it too because our heart leaks. It leaks. So there's the one principle. The greatest among you must be your servant. Then we get two reasons why you should implement that into your life, no matter who you are. Even if you don't believe in God, you should implement this in your life because the principle will bless you. But here's a couple of real legit reasons to do it. All in verse 12. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Who's doing the humbling and the exalting? God is. 
He sees it all. This is why we say God is omnipresent. It's one of the things that's an attribute of God that we don't get. He sees all. And so he knows when you and I need to be humbled. And that's usually when we're unwilling to humble ourselves. In fact, sometimes we're making it all about us, right? What is that on social media, that thing, that humble brag, right? I mean, that's, isn't that just admitting I'm bragging? I'm just trying to find a you know, nice way to spin it. Our tendency is to exalt ourselves. It is in the human heart. And the human heart is deceitful and wicked in many ways, and that is just one of them. Jesus says, serve one another and stop looking for people to serve you. Because when when you exalt yourself, that's what you want. You want people to look up at you. That's one way they could serve you. You want people to... Uh, proclaim the greatness of your name. That's another way they can serve you. You want them to do things for you, right? All, I could go on and on and on, right? But that's what it's about. Essentially, that's what competition's about. I know. I said the same thing. Like, so I'm not going to go there very any further. Just to kind of plant that seed. I promise you it's painful. It will sprout. All right, now there's three applications for how do I deal with this? How do I humble my, how do I do this? For, so first step is you just need to be made aware and honest enough with yourself to, to say, I'm full of myself. I'm conceited. I'm prideful. I'm arrogant. If you're talking spiritual, I'm spiritually arrogant. And you need to just admit that when God puts his finger on that area of your life, that that's true for you. And there may be an exception in the room. It's not me. I can assure you that. Okay? Because if we're not aware and admitting it, we're not going to do any of the next steps. We're not willing to own our pride. Now, when I say pride, it's a little confusing. At least it was for me for a while because I used to say, and and in a sense, I still am proud to be an American, although I had nothing to do with it, to be clear, right? I was born here, and so blessing or curse, that's where I am, okay? I think it's a blessing. There are some challenges that go with it, and I get the sentiment behind that, and I I am pro-America, okay? But my Bible is not red, white, and blue, Okay? There's a difference, right? And, and there, if we're not careful, our pride we can use to justify and end up taking us down some roads that are not good, okay? So um, I, I'll tell you where I struggle with it the most. When my girls were younger and they were still at home and they would do something I, was, I would just feel really great about, I wanted to say, I'm really proud of you. But I'm like, I don't want them to, that, that word, it was just giving me so much, so much problem. With, and I was like, oh, what do I do? So I would say, I'm so pleased with what you did. And in my brain, I would go, oh, that's so weak. I feel so weak. And so I would slip out when no one was looking. I was like, I'm so proud of you. Because I really was. Not in a competitive, my kids are better than Chris's kids kind of way. Not that at all. It was, it was just this, I'm just so... They just blessed me because they did something that just really blessed me, and I know pleased the Lord. And I think they understood that, okay? So context matters. And also, I talked to them a little bit about the word and just careful how you use it. But, you know, we just say it, and we don't really think. Words matter. They mean stuff, even though our culture keeps changing the meanings on us. It's like bait and switch, all right? So, so these three steps, so how do I do that? I need to recognize what's happening in my heart. 
okay? And then I need to do the hard part of humbling myself. That, that really requires you to humble yourself, right? Admit that God's right and that I'm full of myself, okay? And I know that may be offensive to you, and I am not trying to offend you. I'm trying to help you see what God sees, okay? And every, every single one of you, your version of full of yourself looks different, okay? Some of you are really, really good at it. And, and there's a lot of ways you can say, mean that, right? I'm just saying, let's just own it, our pride, and let's be willing to see it how, for how wretched it is because it's gross. To think that, that we are the number one reason why we're so whatever and we're busy patting ourselves on the back for how great we are at whatever and, and think about how little we had to do with the basics. It's kind of like the atheist who said, I could do what God does. I don't need a God. To, and, and so God said, okay, let's, let's have a competition. You, let's, let's build people. Let's make some people. And he's like, okay, that's easy. I'll just start with some mud. And he says, no, go get your own mud. Because God made, right? He, like the stuff we start with is not even ours. God gave us, you say, well, I'm smart. I got a great, I've got this great job and I got this great mind and I'm, I'm making my bosses promote me. Yeah, who gave you the brain? Who gave you the nutrition at an early age that allowed you to develop to the extent that you developed? Who gave you the parents that provided for you so that you didn't have to worry about running for your life from the big animals that could eat you? Right? I mean, who gave you a school system, imperfect though it is, that educated you from as early as you were willing to go? Or parents who educated you, or parents who educated you after you went to school? Right? I mean, how... How did you, and then this brand, then you get this job opportunity. Who put you in a country where there's an economy that is robust enough to where jobs are happening all the time and there's options and choices and universities and, and PhDs and all these things. And then who gave you the energy and the health to actually prosper in the midst of that? God gave you those things. Yes, you had to put them into practice. You had to be diligent. You had to be disciplined. Who gave you the ability to discipline yourself? Parents who would encourage you to be disciplined when you didn't want to be. Coaches who taught you hard work results and good things. Who gave you those people? Who put those people? You didn't arrange all of that. See, our pride says, I did this. And God said, you did this much of this. And this drop in the ocean of everything I did is not even close. And you want to brag about this? It's kind of like when Clemson wins a football game and I go, yes, we did it. Oh, please. I didn't even go to the game, right? So you see what I'm saying? So we have to be aware and admit that. That's probably the hardest thing, that humbling yourself and saying, yeah, I'm a, I'm, I'm a worm, and I'm going to crawl under the carpet now. Now, you're not a worm. You're a treasured person that God created in his image at the same time who rebelled against him, and so we ought to feel like worms, right? But, but he's like, but I'm not done with you, Right? And I took care of what needed to happen to redeem you, to restore you, right? So the next two steps, uh, really, the second step is repent and believe. It's, it's agree with God that what I did was wrong, but then say, I'm going to change my thinking so that I literally change directions in the way I'm going to go spiritually. So I'm not walking down this broad road that leads to destruction. I'm walking down the narrow way that leads to life. Walking with Jesus. My eyes are on him. And because I keep my eyes on him, I don't have to worry about the temptations because my eyes are on him and I don't have any other bandwidth for anything else, just him. And it's really hard to brag when Jesus did it all. It really is. So I repent of that way of thinking to this way of thinking. So that's why it's a repent and believe, Mark 1 15. 
And then the last thing is, what does he tell us to do in the principle? Right? Verse 11, the greatest among you will be your servant. So what am I supposed to do? Serve one another. Start at home. Work out gradually from the people who matter the most to you. Don't skip over them. Start with them. And then work out. Don't stop. And yes, you can do more than one at a time, and you keep serving people. When in doubt, serve, check your heart. Serve, check your heart. Why am I serving? Gosh, this looks pretty good. People are patting me on the back. That's okay. That's called encouragement. We're supposed to encourage one another. That's scriptural, okay? But we're not supposed to let it expand our head like a balloon, okay? Acknowledge, repent and believe, and serve one another, okay? And if you really just absolutely have to have one more point, the fourth thing that you could do to keep you from repeating the prop, the things we've been doing is teach someone else to do what you just learned. Lead others to do the same. And you could put that at the end of every single sermon I preach because that's what we're called to do. Make disciples, not just be a disciple. Because are you really a disciple if you're not making disciples? Because that's what disciples, all right. If you don't know Christ or you don't believe God is real, then obviously this doesn't make sense. I would still say go do those things. But as you're doing them, I want you to ask yourself the question, why? Okay, why not? Those would be two questions I would challenge you with today. If you don't know the Lord and you want to know him, you just talk to him like maybe not in front of all these people, but you can just talk to him and you can do it in your head. You can do it out loud. It doesn't matter. And you just admit, I have an ego problem. I have a pride problem. I have a big head problem. And I need you to change and fix that because I can't fix it. Okay, that's called admitting your weakness. Okay, and God has made a provision for that in the cross where Jesus took the penalty. Okay, Jesus was punished for my sins instead of me being punished for my sins. And for you being punished for your sins, you have to say, I believe that Jesus took my place and I'm good with that. Okay, and who wouldn't be, right? Who wouldn't be someone taking the penalty for my crime? I'm good with that. You, yes. And Jesus could do that because he was innocent of any crime which is the only reason he's qualified. Well, one reason he's qualified, the big reason he's qualified. And then you can decide whether or not you want to lead others to do that, but in the process of serving one another. So if that's your heart and you want to pray, whether you want to pray to get back on track or you want to pray to get on track for the first time, you could pray with me something along these lines. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are great. You are awesome. You are mighty, you are gracious, you are love, you are truth, you are holy, and we are none of these things apart from your grace and mercy. There is none of that in us apart from you. Lord, we need that. And we humble ourselves in this moment and admit that, that our passion apart from you is making ourselves the God of our world the king of our little kingdom. And Lord, that's just repulsive because our creator created us, you created us to be so much more and so much less at the same time. Instead of being the little tiny king in our kingdom to be the great massive treasured citizen in your infinite. And so Lord, I pray that you would help us humble ourselves and admit we need Jesus that we need Jesus' substitutionary, sacrificial atonement on the cross in our place. We need, and so Lord, that we get by believing that we've been thinking wrong and that we need to change our thinking to repent 
and think rightly as you have taught us in your word. We ask you to help us do that so that it leads to a kingdom fruit, to a a fruitfulness, a spiritual fruitfulness where we're able to do great things without having to be thought of as great because we acknowledge, acknowledge rightly that you're the one doing the great things through us because we surrendered to you. And we ask you to do that in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.